Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around him, and the impact he empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Again, good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Alan, part of the team here, and I'm excited to get to continue on our gospel in the or our series in the Gospel of Mark. Don't forget, next week, I know we're online only this week, thank you for joining us, but next week we are going to be in our brand new venue of Rosemary Presbyterian. Come and join us, different time, 1pm. I know we've already said it, just reminding you in case you missed it in the announcement. So, today actually marks a little bit of a transition in our journey through Mark's Gospel. This next section that we're about to start into is kind of the longest section that Mark dedicates to the teachings of Jesus. You know, most of the rest of the time he is just full throttle on narrative and action and you know little one-liners or two-liners, but it's mostly the, the, the ministry of Jesus that Mark focuses in on. That's you know, but but in this section we see some dedicated time to the teachings of Jesus. And that's not to say that Mark couldn't remember any other bits of Jesus' teaching or that Jesus didn't do any other teaching. But there is something in, in Mark's mind about the bits that he selected that leads us towards the picture of the life with Jesus that he's trying to paint for us. Before we dive into our passage this morning, I just want to take a quick pause and just remind us of a couple of things about Gospels and really about, indeed about any of the books of the Bible as you approach them. And firstly, they aren't modern literature. They are ancient Near Eastern texts written not to us, but to readers familiar with a very different style of writing and of reading, things that seem odd or out of place or even maybe a little bit sketchy to us were perfectly normal and totally expected by them. Secondly, the, the whole of the Bible is meditation literature. It is intentionally written by the authors, compiled by the editors, to be read and read and reread and wrestled with and discussed and offended by and put down and picked up again and read over a lifetime. It's intentionally connected backwards and forwards throughout different books across different time periods and languages and styles. It's meant to be a mystery that requires a lifetime of engagement. And again, that's not how we would normally approach a book. It's not how our literature would normally work in our context and our time. You don't expect in a newspaper to have to read the whole thing before you understand the first, the first article and then to skip forward and back and read it several times. You expect something that's linear and that's not how the Bible is written. And then thirdly, how it is written, what stories and teachings are included and how they're arranged is just as important as the content itself. The gospel writers aren't simply putting down everything they can remember that Jesus said in the order that they think they remember him saying it. If we read it like that, 
we spot a whole bunch of, of seeming inconsistencies and we think it seems untrue. That's just not how Jewish literature worked. The gospel writers aren't just, um, you know, chronologically putting something down in facts. They aren't just, um, you know, writers and, and editors. They are guides and theologians. They're taking the story and the teachings of this man, Jesus, and they're arranging them carefully, selecting some stories and leaving others out, not to, not to trick us or to paint a false picture. They simply couldn't put it all in anyway. But what they're trying to do is lead us on a journey of encountering the message of Jesus for ourselves. And each one has a slightly different emphasis or a slightly different theme that they're drawing out. And that's why you see you know, Matthew include things that, that Mark doesn't and Luke write with a, with a focus on a passage that John maybe skips out. That's not duplicitous. That's not a mistake. They're not at odds with one another. They're guides and theologians unpacking who this Jesus is from a particular angle. You know, imagine for a moment that you came and you asked me about a recent holiday and how it was. You're not actually asking me for, you know, a chronological day-by-day detailed list of events. At least I hope you're not. I don't think that's what you're expecting. The likelihood is if I was to talk about it, I'd pick a, a couple of themes that were important to me. You know, I'd say, oh, we had an amazing time. It was just so restful. We spent so much time just lying by the pool, you know, dozing in the sun, reading books. You know, we spent some days just chilling at the beach. We had long lions in the mornings. It was just wonderful. And the food, you know, we had lots of fresh bread for breakfast each morning out on the balcony. We had lovely salads and plenty of ice cream. It was delicious. We barbecued once. We went to a couple of restaurants. We went to this amazing tapas place one night and Laurie had prawns and I had steak. It was gorgeous. Now, if I said that about our holiday, you're not thinking, you know, I'm saying we did only two things. We slept and we ate. I mean, that's maybe not far from the truth, but you wouldn't assume that's what I was saying. Nor would you expect that I was being linear. Like we did all our resting on week one, and then we did all our eating in week two, and we never, never blended the two. And, and you don't think that's possible, so I must be lying or somehow untrue. You understand that I'm picking a theme. You understand that if you asked one of our kids about the very same holiday, you get an entirely different response. They'd probably be Something like, we had so much time in the water. We were like in the water every day. You know, we were playing in the pool and we bought this ball that could bounce on the water and it was amazing. We had so much fun. I practiced my diving. We bought a lilo that was shaped like a watermelon and we lived in it like every day. And then a few days we went to the beach and we were in the waves and we were snorkeling. And then this one day we hit up an amazing water park, just slides and a wave pool. It was awesome. Same holiday, same experiences. We did it all together, but they had no mention of food or rest because they, that wasn't the bits that excited them. And it's still all true. And it's still painting a picture of something that really happened. And again, we see that the similar ideas play out in the gospels. They bring different themes, different aspects to paint this picture. They're not trying to give us a factual diary, day by day, blow of the things that Jesus said and did. 
They're trying to explain who he is and what he came to do. And just like you know, when you hear my kids talk about the holiday, you wouldn't necessarily expect that you know, the water park was the last day. But it was the last thing they said because we tend to build up to the best. We tend to tell stories in a way that build the, the excitement. Well, in Hebrew writings, they do things a little differently. The center is the key park, and they tend to work in symmetry on the outside of that. So if a Hebrew writer was telling you about our holiday, they would talk about we spent plenty of days by the pool, we spent a couple of days down at this gorgeous beach, and then we went one day to an amazing water park. It was just incredible. And then we spent some other days at the beach, and of course, lots more time by the pool. They work in this peak with the center being the focus and, and in symmetry outside it. And when you have eyes to see it, all throughout the Bible, you actually catch that and you realize that when there's a repetition here and here, that the thing in the center is probably the most important part. And we'll see some of these things play out today in our passage as we look to. And lastly, the Bible and especially the Gospels wasn't written with chapters in mind. You know, Mark didn't finish chapter 3, flip the page, it's blank, chapter 4, I wonder what theme this will be about. That wasn't in his head. It was a flow. It was one blending into the next. And so we have to be careful in our reading that we don't segregate what wasn't meant to be separate. You know, last week we finished with Jesus declaring, my brother and sister and mother are those who will do the will of God. And we should be pondering, at least in Mark's opinion, what is the will of God? How might I do that? What does that mean? How does that impact me? And with that thought, with, with that question bouncing around in our mind, Mark takes us to the next part of his story and we arrive in chapter 4. Let's read it together with all that in mind. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowds that gathered around him were so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. Just slight pause, one little aside just here. Um, this is actually possible. Israeli scientists have, have found that there's a, a little bay in this region near Capernaum. They've called it the Bay of Parables. And the landscape is so uniquely formed that it creates this acoustic anomaly that they could sit out on the lake and speak in a way without amplification that thousands could hear. I just think that's a fascinating little detail. Like this isn't just myth or hyperbole. This is really possible and really did happen. So Jesus is out on the lake um, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge and he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, uh, but because the soil was shallow, uh, because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants uh, were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still others fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone with the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, 
but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, and then he quotes Isaiah 6, that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown in rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall quickly away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times what was sown. I'd imagine to many of us, this is a fairly familiar passage. But looking beyond the familiar, beyond the obvious, we see this uh, Markin sandwich again at play. This idea of symmetry and the, the important part being in the center. You know, the parable versus three to nine is like one slice of bread, if you will. And Jesus' interpretation to his disciples in 13 to 20 mirrors it on the other side and with the key or Mark's main thrust for including this in his gospel sitting as the filling in the center verses 10 to 12. And we can see this is just highly intentional from Mark because it isn't a chronological encounter. In 1 to 9, Jesus is sitting in a boat on a lake with a crowd gathered around him. Then in 10 to 20, he's in a small private setting with the disciples and a few close followers. And then next week we'll see in verses 21 to the end of the chapter, he's still on the lake in the boat teaching the crowds. Mark's taken a later conversation with the disciples and he's placed it here to help us grasp something of life with Jesus that we might otherwise miss. That doesn't make it untrue. It doesn't make it duplicitous. It makes it logical. If I want to understand what this is about and I want you to see what it's about, I'm going to put the meaning beside it and I'm going to build this little unit with the centerpiece holding the key. You see, on the surface, for those in the crowd, hearing just Jesus' teaching and, and none of the interpretation, this was a fairly standard rabbinic teaching. It's not quite as basic as gardener's question time. You know, when you sow your fields, just, just go for it. Sow everywhere, sow everywhere. Don't worry about the ground and you will get at least some return. It's not quite that simple. The hearers of his day and Mark's Greek or Roman readers would be familiar with, with sowing seed representing a teacher's teaching and soil representing those hearing it, representing the students. Most would have got that. But for the discerning hearer, especially from a Jewish background, sowing of seed was a fixed Old Testament metaphor for something God would do. It wasn't about ideas or education. It wasn't about farming or gardening, but about establishing and re-establishing Israel as God's chosen people. 
We can see it in the prophets writing in Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36 or Hosea 2. We hear again and again this idea that God will sow, meaning his people, Israel, back in the land that they will flourish within. It was a, a declaration again that the kingdom of God had come. And if they grasped it, if Jesus' hearers went, hold on a minute, I think he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about us as God's chosen people being replanted, being placed again to flourish in the land that we were given to. That would have piqued their interest. They would have been all ears. But it also then would have confused them. You see, their expectation of how God would restore Israel wouldn't have lined up with this parable. Surely, in the parabolic sense, you know, any Messiah would bring an army of workers and they would clear the field and they would remove every stone and every thistle. They would break up the hard ground and work it over until it, and then they would sow a bumper harvest like no one had seen before. 10,000 fold return, 100,000 fold return. And we see that kind of language in some of the, the Second Temple Judaism writing of this time, where that's the kind of thing that they would expect the Messiah to do. No seed lost, no effort wasted, no room for Israel's enemies to stand. The birds wouldn't have been allowed to come and just pick at the seed and the birds would have represented Satan. There would have been like a, a death to all the birds. This would have been like an incredible harvest. And as they grasped there's something of God and his kingdom at work here, they also would have been confused. And this tension and this confusion, Jesus goes on to tell us, is actually the point. We are supposed to have to wrestle with his teaching. There's something in the mystery that's really, really important. And Mark takes his readers by the hand and he leads us through how we are to approach not, not just this passage, but all of the tensions that we encounter as we look at Jesus, his life and his teachings. When we see with open and with honest eyes, when we hear with fresh ears, there is much tension, there's much mystery, even much confusion. And we don't like tension and we don't like ambiguity. We like things to be clear and to have one definitive, actionable, clear meaning. And I'm afraid to tell you that the Bible isn't intended to be read that way. Jesus didn't teach in that style. And when we try to force it into that style, we're not being true to the texts and true to the heart of the writers who wrote it. You know, there's several things that we could take from this teaching. And I would actually encourage you to spend some time thinking them through because they're really, really good things that are important to see. We could see that Jesus doesn't say, I am the sower or I am the only sower. That there's an implied expectation that we who follow him would, would partner with him in the act of sowing. That we have a call on our lives to share the good news of the kingdom of God far and wide. That'd be great to ponder on. We could see that the sower isn't too worried about targeting just the good soil. That how you know we shouldn't try to judge or discern the posture of people's hearts 
or rule people out as not ready to hear. We don't get to be the ones who pick this group and not that group. The sower doesn't do that in the parable. He just gets sowing liberally far and wide. That'd be a great thing to ponder. We could see that the sower isn't responsible for the soil. There's no plowing or weeding or fertilizing mentioned here. There's no scarecrow put up to keep the birds away. When we feel discouraged and when our efforts to share the good news of Jesus seem to bear little fruit, or maybe no fruit, we could find encouragement that Jesus said that's to be expected. That he doesn't work the soil, he simply declares the message. We could look at the soil and see that ultimately the condition of our hearts is the determining factor in whether or not we'll see fruit in our lives. We could identify the things that can choke out or distract or discourage the growth, that, the, the things that would take us away from what God wants in our lives and spend time adjusting our lives and our priorities and our expectations accordingly. And that would be a brilliant thing to ponder. We could even look big picture that despite all the challenges and all the seeming failures, a harvest does come. God's kingdom will not be thwarted. That in the end, he rules and he reigns. And those are all good stuff. They're all true. They're all well worth taking time pondering over and wrestling with. And I think they all are partly the meaning of Jesus' teaching. But for just a few moments this morning, I'd love us to allow Mark to lead us to his center thought as he brings this teaching of Jesus to us. And what do we find in that little, in the middle of that little sandwich? What are the filling? Look at verses 10 to 12. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him, this is Jesus, asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that, again, then he quotes Isaiah 6, they may be ever hearing or ever seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. This seems super harsh. It reads, at least in our translations anyway, like Jesus doesn't want everyone to understand, that he doesn't want the crowds to fully grasp his message or else everyone might repent and be forgiven. That's really uncomfortable. That's not entirely what Jesus is saying. And there's some wrestling and some thinking and some pondering that we need to do. But we can't just dance past the fact that it's also there and it creates a tension in our hearts. Writing on this, David Garland, a commentator, says this, Jesus did not strive to make things easier for the crowds to comprehend or to make them feel more comfortable. His enigmatic teachings served to separate those who were curious from those who were serious, those who were seeking only a religious sideshow from those who were truly seeking after God. He was intent on eliciting genuine faith, And Mark's gospel insists that faith is born of the tension between the revealing and the veiling of the truth. 
Jesus is saying that there's something about life with God, the life that we were made for, his kingdom rule and reign in and through us, that is a mystery. A mystery that, that can't be re- reasoned through or solved like a puzzle or a whodunit novel, but a deep, deep wonder that only God can reveal that God will only reveal to those who seek it. That to those on the inside, to those who are the family, the mother and the brother and the sisters that we heard of last week, to those on the inside, those gathered around Jesus, understanding and revelation would be given as a gift from God. But to those on the outside, it would make little to no sense. Paul echoes this in his writings to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, we see this, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Or in chapter 1, verse 18, he writes, For the message of the cross, or the word of God, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's something about these mysteries that are only revealed to those who are on the inside, to those who seek it out, to those who inhabit the teachings of Jesus. One commentator writing about parables describes both parables and indeed the life of Jesus much like the stained glass windows of a church. From the outside they look fairly dull and simple but from the inside looking out with the light pouring through there is a beauty and a wonder and much more than we could have perceived from afar. These parables, these teachings of Jesus, Mark's trying to show us weren't meant to be reasoned through so much as inhabited, stepped into with a posture that allows the Holy Spirit to reveal the mysteries of life with him to us. I think Mark gives us so much detail and so much focus on this parable because it is ultimately about how we are to respond to Jesus. How we are to respond to all his teachings and all his life and the mission that he came on. It's an impassioned plea to not take Jesus' words as simply good teaching to be reasoned through and thought through and understood. If he made it simple for us, we would fall into that trap. But instead, there are invitations to to step into, to wrestle with, to be confused by, maybe even offended by him, and to sit at his feet and to ask for the gift of revelation and understanding directly from the source. So how do we get on the inside? How do we get to be the ones to whom understanding is revealed? Again, it sounds a little like chapter 3 repeating itself. And Mark has some clues for us here. We get a a little bit shortchanged in our English translation. But in the original Greek of this passage, the words hear or listen or see 
are used at least 15 times in these few verses. Jesus starts his parable in verse 3 in our translation says, listen. What it says in the Greek is, listen, look. It's two words in the Greek. It's an unnecessary doubling up. And he ends it in verse 9 similarly with a, with a pun in the original language, which is essentially, listen, listen. It's not just listen. It's not just hear. It's listen, listen. He's saying there are different kinds of listening, different kinds of hearing. To mine the depths, to truly understand, our hearing needs to be active and intentional. Don't just hear. Don't just let my words wash over you, but actively listen. Listen, listen. That's what Jesus is saying. And in his interpretation, the, the three poor soils or bad soils, they hear or listen in the past tense. It's a one-time deal with no further connection to the source. But the good soil hears in the present tense. It's continually ongoing. What Mark is trying to show us is that the fruit of life with Jesus comes from a responsive posture. That without ongoing listening, we won't ever truly get it. When we hear or we read a teaching or a story or a moment in the life of Jesus, we may understand some of it. At a surface level, we might grab something, but there will always be a mystery that is hidden in it that requires engagement with Jesus to uncover. We have to step in before we'll understand it, not wait um, to we fully understand it before we step in. And I get that that's tricky to get our heads around and it's not how we work in our current mindset. So let's, let's take a fairly repeated teaching of Jesus as an example of what I'm trying to explain. So love your enemies, pray for those who wrong you. That's a pretty repeated, pretty standard teaching of Jesus that we've probably all heard. We, most of us anyway, I'd imagine, don't maybe have people that we would deem enemies, but we could summarize it as forgive people who wrong you and pray for their best. On the surface, it seems like a pretty simple teaching, right? Like we kind of get what he's poking at. It's not hard to get our heads around the concept. So how might we respond when we hear that teaching? You know, forgive those who've wronged you, pray for their best. Well, if we're like in, the, in this parable described, if our posture is like the hard soil, we're going to hear that and go, nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. What a weak and a stupid idea. Why would anybody do that? You'll just be walked over like a doormat. I don't want to do that. I want revenge. I want justice. And we hear it and nothing sinks in. It's immediately snapped away. For others that would be like the rocky soil, we hear it and we go, you know what, that kind of makes sense. That, that's, that, that, yeah, I can get my head around that. I might even give it a go. I think there might be some freedom for me if I try that. And we, we hear it, we think, yeah, and we leave church or we get up from reading the Bible or we switch off the podcast and we never think about it again. We agreed in a moment, but it was pretty quickly gone. It didn't take root, it had no depth in our lives. And some of us, 
We might be like the soil that it grew up with thorns and it choked it out. And we hear that teaching, I, I need to forgive those who've wronged me. I need to pray for their best. And we say, I actually really need that. I know that I'm caught up in a bunch of unforgiveness. There's a bunch of people that I'm mad at. And we begin to try. And we try to walk out and we try really hard to forgive them. And we're like, I forgive you, I forgive you. And we realize it gets really hard. And it gets tough. And we don't have the emotional or the spiritual energy to keep going. And we just check out. I'm done. I tried. It was hard. I can't do it. And then there's the good soil. And we hear that. We hear, I need to forgive those who've wronged me. I need to pray for their best. And we know, I need this. I need to do this. And I try. And it's really hard. And I realize that I can't do it in my own strength. And in the good soil, then that person says, I need to go to Jesus. And I go in frustration and I go in hurt. And I say, Jesus, you told me to do this. You told me there'd be life and there'd be freedom here and I'd see your kingdom come and I've tried and it's hard and I can't do it and I need your help. It's not working. Explain it to me again. It seemed really simple and yet I can't seem to do it. And from the inside, we create the place where a mystery can be revealed. The true depth of my hurt and my pain and the impact on me is actually revealed. I mean, we've all done this where we've, somebody's hurt us and we've gone, it's not really a big deal. We'll just forget about it. You know, we'll just move on. But when we engage with the actual hurt, when we try to work through forgiveness, we realize actually our hurt was deeper than we knew. And it reveals the wound in our heart. And when it's revealed, it can be healed. Maybe we try to do it and we go to Jesus and he begins to see, show us our own brokenness and our own feelings in ways that we haven't seen before. I see the dark and the vengeful side of my heart. When I try to pray for blessing over someone who's hurt me, I realize I don't really want to. I don't want them to be blessed. I kind of want something bad to happen to them. They did something bad to me. They, I kind of feel like they deserve something bad to happen to them. I want them to suffer like I've suffered. That's dark. If I don't ever try to engage with this teaching, I don't ever really realize that. But as I press in, as I sit at the feet of Jesus and say, it's not working, he gently reveals my brokenness. And he reminds me afresh of the cross and of my sin and my failures that put him there. And I'm humbled afresh. I'm having to wrestle afresh with the injustice and the unfairness. And I understand even more what it cost Jesus. What he paid for me. When it feels unfair that I should have to forgive without getting something in return. I suddenly realized just how unfair it was that Jesus had to die for me. Maybe I'm convicted afresh of my own sin. Maybe I'm challenged afresh of my need to go and say sorry to those I've wronged, to those I need to repent to. Maybe I'm simply left more in love and awe and wonder at a God who would forgive me. 
a God who would personally choose pain and suffering so that I wouldn't have to. Can you see how when we step into a teaching that seems simple, when we choose to engage, when we wrestle with something that doesn't seem to be working at the feet of Jesus, we find a mystery revealed, a depth that wasn't there when we started. In one sense, forgive your enemies is in itself a parable. It's a simple command with a much deeper meaning. The mystery and the wonder is that the command, when I step into it, has really very little to do with the other and is in fact an invitation for me to intimacy with Jesus and an opportunity to grasp more fully the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of God's love and his grace for me. Does that make sense? When we step into the teachings of Jesus, when we wrestle with them, there's a mystery in the depth that we can't get on the surface. What I believe Mark is trying to show us here is how we're supposed to respond to Jesus. We're invited to open our ears, to open our hearts, to step into his way of life in the full knowledge that we don't fully get it. That there are mysteries hidden that God wants to reveal to us as we go that there is a lifetime of pondering, reflecting, conversing with and receiving from Jesus ahead of us. That we don't get all the goods up front. And that the thing that we think it's about when we sit at the feet of Jesus and let him reveal the truth, it's probably about something much deeper and richer and something profoundly different. The thing we think is about the other is usually about us. But we don't get there without stepping in. A large portion of Jesus' hearers by the lake in this story simply heard once and went home. Some of them went home mad. Some of them intending to respond, others trying but ultimately returning to life as normal. But a portion, a small portion, the twelve and, and some others, they heard in a different way. A way that unsettled them. A way that meant that they needed answers. And they sought Jesus out. They went looking for him. They questioned him. They wanted to hear him explain what they couldn't get their heads around. They weren't smarter. Or more gifted. Or more educated. They weren't chosen and predestined in a way that others weren't. They were simply more responsive. They took their confusion and their doubts and they took it to Jesus. Not as a reason to ignore Jesus. Their responsiveness created the good soil that the kingdom could take root in. Their willingness to seek created the kind of heart where God could reveal the mysteries of who he is. They listened, listened. And so we're led to repentance and forgiveness and life with God. Jesus, as he quotes Isaiah 6, is not saying, I don't want everybody to repent. I don't want everybody to be forgiven. 
He's saying everybody can't be unless they engage and they wrestle. He's saying if they would listen, 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 then the natural outcome would be they would understand and turn and repent. What would it look like for us to listen, listen? To be a people that didn't just hear the teachings of Jesus wash over us, that didn't just read the Bible as an exercise, that didn't just listen to worship music, or didn't just go through the motions of religious practice. What if we were a people who stepped in, who entered in to the teachings and the stories and the life and the community and the worship even when we don't fully get it, even when we can't quite get our heads around it? What if we again and again inhabited the life Jesus calls us to? What if we tried and realized there's more to this than we can get our heads around and so in turn spent time in his presence, seeking his wisdom and his empowering strength, allowing him to reveal the mysteries that we can't reason our way to? The Bible is intentionally mysterious. Life with Jesus is very far from black and white. We aren't given all or even half of the answers in nicely, neatly packaged sections precisely because God wants to reveal them to us himself in deep, life-giving, intimate relationship with him. There is much, much more that we could look at in this passage, that we could ponder on and chew on, that we could listen, listen to and come out the other side transformed. And I believe Mark and primarily Jesus would invite us to do just that. What mystery might God reveal to you today if you took the time to seek him out? To not just read his word, to not just hear his word, but to listen, listen, to see, see, to press in, to wrestle, to seek his face, and to allow him to reveal the truth of the wonders of who he is. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you would you slow us down where we want quick and easy answers, where we want to rush on, where we want to read and say we've done it and tick a box and move past? Would you cause us to linger? Would you cause curiosity in our hearts? Would you cause wrestle in our minds to not be a bad thing? Would you cause tension to not be a thing to be avoided, but would they drive us to your feet? Would we sit in the uncertainty and allow you to reveal the mysteries of your kingdom to us? Would you teach us how to be the good soil we see in this story, to be responsive hearts, to be people who listen, listen to your word? Would you calm Holy Spirit and call us into the infinitely more that you have for us this week. Amen. Guys, thanks for being with us. 
Looking forward to seeing you next week in Rosemary at 1 p.m. God bless and have a wonderful, wonderful week. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.